3: Hi again, Molly. This is Jeremy. Um, and I just wanted to say that I didn't expect to, but I got an awful lot out of your fairy tale, uh, mother wound episode. I. <laughs> Especially got a lot out of the difference between the hero's journey and the heroine's journey about being long suffering and having to learn, you know, things like kindness and trusting different friends that come along, uh, as opposed to like going off and slaying the dragon. Uh, And I got a lot out of it, even as a, you know, cis straight dude and I I don't want to fall into a paradigm of saying like, you know, men and women have to have the hero or the heroine's journey, but it's given me a pretty cool new way to look at, uh, what I went through and continue to go through. Um, so I, I think I might go watch some more Disney movies or something (laughs) with, uh, like heroines and stuff. Anyway, uh, I really appreciated that one. So thank you for that.
0: Thank you for that voicemail, Jeremy. I'm not going to lie. It made me chuckle. (laughs) I'm so glad that my podcast is, you know, just doing its job, getting men to watch fairy tales. I guess, I guess my job here is done. You can't see it, but I'm rubbing my hands together. (laughs) So for those who haven't listened to it yet, Jeremy is referring to an episode that I did called The Fear of Abandonment and the Mother Wound in Fairy Tales. And that episode is from uh, May 2nd, 2023, if you are scrolling back and wanting to listen to it. And more recently, I did two incredibly long, deep dives on the mother and father wounds. And then just last week, we explored healing both the mother and father wounds from a spiritual perspective through the lens of Eastern philosophy and different Eastern uh, traditions. And I have never gotten so much feedback about three episodes, probably since my very first three episodes of the podcast about splitting, which are now available in my archives. If you become a premium member It's just that when I first started the podcast, my audio quality was not the greatest, it's still very listenable, but I've archived some of my earlier episodes and they're available to my premium subscribers, but needless to say, that first three episodes on splitting popped off and I don't think I've had anything like have such a wave of feedback like that, like the mother and father wound exploration has. And... I've come to understand why that is. Well, I have a theory at least. And it's because these things are core wounds. They're the reason behind much of our maladaptive behavior. The behavior that keeps us stuck. The patterns we keep repeating that keep us from living in alignment with our full truth. So it's no surprise that someone might listen to the mother and father wound episodes and have the Oprah Winfrey aha moment concept, right? Where you're like, oh, this is it. This is what I'm struggling with. And I'm glad to hear that listeners like Jeremy enjoyed hearing about some of these core wounds through the lens of fairy tales and myth and mysticism For many of us, it can feel like we understand things intellectually, but it's just not getting through. So, for example, in my own recovery journey, reading things about different therapeutic modalities like CBT and DBT, while they were helpful, I just felt like when I was in a moment of feeling triggered, it was very hard for me when I was about to like lose my shit or wanting to like cry myself to sleep because I didn't get a text back, (laughs) it was hard for me to remember in those moments, oh, I need to do the dear man skill or something like that, right? Like (laughs) I wanted to, but I was never able to draw on those skills and moments of feeling triggered. And so that's why somatic work and trauma release work and learning about these core wounds through Spirituality through fairy tales through myth and depth psychology has been what's finally been able to penetrate for me because it allows me to see things from a more generational perspective through an archetypal lens and learning about it in this way in a way where I didn't feel like I was shoving different quote-unquote skills down my throat so that I could make myself into a more digestible and bearable person for the world around me. An exploration, in the way I'm describing to you now, has been what has helped me most because instead of feeling like something was wrong with me, I realized that these were patterns that have been playing out for thousands of years and I'm not the only one and neither are you and while it might feel like disorder or dysfunction and yes it might be wreaking havoc in your life these myths and these spiritual traditions and these different ways of understanding human suffering are there for us to go in and draw upon and Jeremy mentioned a concept called the Hero's and Heroine's Journey. And I've done some episodes on this on the main feed, but also if you're interested, I've done a 21-episode series that's a guided visualization process and exploration of the different steps and stages in the Hero's Journey. And you can unlock that by becoming a premium subscriber. But there is also something called the Heroine's Journey, And so for those of you who don't know, The Hero's Journey is a way of looking at our journey through life and the different phases that we have to go through. And an author named Maureen Murdoch, she wrote a book called The Heroine's Journey. So kind of drawing on a feminine perspective of how women should perceive and pursue wholeness and integration from a psychological perspective And in her book, she draws upon the myth of Sumerian goddess Inanna, and she interprets the descent of Inanna in this myth, in this myth Inanna goes into the underworld, as a quest for wholeness. And Maureen Murdoch believes that we must journey into the depths of our own being to face the truths of the self as well as of the world. And in her book, she writes, it's a sacred journey. In our culture, however, it's usually categorized as a depression, which must be medicated and eliminated as quickly as possible. Maureen also explains that underworld experiences, how these different goddesses and these myths are forced to go into the underworld. These experiences are characterized by feelings of confusion and grief alienation, rage, and despair. And Maureen writes that there are no easy answers in the underworld. There's no quick way out. Silence pervades when the wailing ceases. One is naked and walks on the bones of the dead. All of us have to go through changing processes in life. And these changing processes are represented by life and death, seasons, and the cycle of the moon the moon is still the primal image of the mystery of birth growth decay death and regeneration and as a human race both men and women need to honor the feminine and the cycles of nature life and death are a continuing process where something new is born after something else dies And for all of us, healing occurs as we allow something to die in order to make room for something new. Arthur Gertrude Miller Nelson wrote, Every day we die a hundred little deaths, in losses, failures, longings, and rejections. We die a little every time we have to separate and let go, because we can't love each other and give life unless we also give each other the freedom to be separate learning to let go, keeps us from getting stuck in hell, right? It allows us to use these experiences that we're going through, the trauma that we've faced for growth, understanding, and healing. And through the lens of the hero's and heroine's journey, the idea is that with the feminine heroine's journey, Women heal and learn to let go by learning to return to the nurturing earth. And then in contrast, the masculine hero's journey is more active. Jungian analyst James Hollis, one of my favorite authors, writes that the hero's journey can be seen as a descent into the unconscious. It's a place where we have to do battle With the monsters that wait in the depths of our unconscious mind. We have to be unafraid to go to the parts of us that are in the shadows. Going into the underworld. And if the hero survives this descent. If we survive these dark nights of the soul. We will be transformed. And this transformation is a death and rebirth experience. Who we were. What our conscious world was like is no more. Everything is transformed from that point. This descent into the unknown is where the stories and symbolism of fighting our monsters, slaying the dragon, that's where this comes from. And this symbolizes going into our shadows and fighting our own demons in order to discover wholeness or psychological individuation. This is emotional alchemy, right? Dissolving something so that it can rise back up from the ashes, transformed. Solve et coagula, that Latin phrase. Dissolve and coagulate. Dissolve and come back together into something new. Welcome to Back from the Borderline, everyone. And I don't want to talk to your personality. I want to talk to your soul. As we just discussed, the idea of alchemy is to reduce something with fire and bring something new up from the ashes. And you can do this with your personality too. You can perform emotional alchemy. You've always had the power, you just didn't know that. And now you do. I'm your host, Molly, and here on this podcast, we learn to view our symptoms as saviors. As alerts from our body, mind, and spirit that want to let us know when we're out of alignment with the deepest yearnings of our souls. Welcome, returning listeners. And if you're new here, welcome, welcome, welcome to the family. I'm so glad you're here. Today marks part one of our exploration of toxic shame. And this is going to be a multi episode series, just like the mother and father wound episodes. Why? Because Toxic shame is another one of these core underpinning issues that gives rise to so many of our quote-unquote disordered and dysfunctional behaviors and if we can really understand and alchemize the core wounds of the mother and father and also understand and learn to recognize and alchemize toxic shame, your life will be transformed. When I came across the concept of toxic shame was when I learned about what CPTSD was, complex post-traumatic stress disorder and toxic shame and learning how to move around that and understand it better is a huge part of CPTSD recovery. And to- for many of us, toxic shame is the core demon in our lives. Shame means that we become aware of the massive destructive power that shame has exerted over our lives. This discovery can lead to us realizing that we've been bound up by shame all of our entire lives. It rules over us like an addiction. And for me, I acted it out in my life. I covered it up in clever and not so clever ways. I transferred it over to people that I love, people that I worked with, I'm sure my friends, and it might be the same for you. Shame is and has been, I've realized this unconscious lurking monster within me that I never really acknowledged that was running my life completely. And by becoming aware of the dynamics of shame, I have started to realize that shame is one of the most destructive forces in all of human life. And by shining light on shame, in naming it in our own life, and becoming aware of when it's present. This is when we can begin to have power over it. This is what it means to slay our dragons. Now, shame isn't always bad. Shame is an adaptive human experience. Shame is a normal human emotion. It's actually necessary to have the feeling of shame for us to really be human. It's a very human thing. Shame's the emotion that actually gives us permission to be human. It tells us about our limits. It keeps us in our human boundaries. It lets us know we can and will make mistakes and that we need help. Our shame tells us that we are not God or we are not some omnipotent being. To have healthy shame is to have a really strong psychological foundation of humility. It's good to have a sense of humility. This is something that allows us to better interact with the world around us and understand other people. But shame as a healthy human emotion can be transformed into Shame as a state of being, as a way of living, and shame as a state of being takes over your entire identity. To live with shame as your identity looks like believing that your entire being is flawed, that you are defective somehow as a human being and that someone's going to figure it out. Once shame is transformed into your identity, that's when it is no longer adaptive and allowing you to develop humility and healthy, as we described before, it becomes toxic and dehumanizing. Toxic shame is unbearable feeling. It makes us feel like we need to create some kind of a cover-up so that people won't figure out this dirty secret that we have and that cover-up looks like a false self and since we feel like our true self is defective and flawed you might feel like you need a false self which is not defective and flawed and here's the thing about becoming a false self once you become a false self It's almost like you don't even exist from a psychological perspective to live within toxic shame as your identity as this false self is actually to cease being an authentic human being an author that I like quite a bit named Alice Miller. She talks about this process of false self formation and she actually calls it soul murder. Because as a false self, you try to be more than human or less than human. And toxic shame, we're now beginning to understand since around the 80s and 90s. But it's still not talked about enough, in my opinion. Toxic shame is the core of most forms of what we know as or refer to as emotional illness. Gershon Kaufman, a clinical psychologist who wrote a book called Shame, the Power of Caring in 1980, wrote, shame is the effect which is the source of many complex and disturbing inner states, depression, alienation, self-doubt, isolating loneliness, paranoid schizoid phenomena, compulsive disorders, splitting of the self, perfectionism, a deep sense of inferiority, inadequacy or failure, the so-called, he literally writes, so-called borderline conditions and disorders of narcissism. You can tell that a lot of clinical and depth psychologists kind of ho-hum personality disorder labels because they know that it's more complicated than that. It's the human emotional experience cannot be categorized cleanly into little boxes like this. Toxic shame destroys the function of our authentic self. And when that happens, that's when we see the outward appearance of disorders or dysfunctions in a person. These manifestations of toxic shame develop out of these false self cover-ups that we're talking about. And not only does toxic shame make up a lot of the disorder and dysfunctional behavior that we see in ourselves and other people and that we're talking all about all over instagram and everyone creates content around it the core is toxic shame and not only that much political violence wars and criminality is down to toxic shame it is actually the closest thing that all of us humans share many of us in the west have been surrounded whether or not we went to church or not we are surrounded by discourse about the holy bible and we all know the story of adam and eve and in the bible hebrew adam is equivalent to mankind adam symbolizes all human beings And the Bible suggests that Adam wasn't satisfied with his own being. He wanted to be more than who he was. He wanted to be more than human. He failed to accept his essential limitations. And this is how he lost his healthy sense of shame. The Bible suggests, and just as many major spiritual texts, there's a lot of Beautiful allegory here to explore. I also think it's really liberating for those of us who've experienced religious trauma to be able to reclaim some things from different spiritual traditions, especially those who grew up in more fundamentalist Christian households to understand a more archetypal understanding of what the book of Genesis is saying. And how we can take some of those gems and take them into our life without having it be traumatic and shame-inducing. So, I digress. You know in the Bible and in Christianity, the origin of human bondage is kind of what they call original sin. And original sin in the Bible is the desire to be something else than who we are. To be more than human. That's actually the core of it. It's been twisted and used in all different ways to actually shame people, which is ironic. But in his toxic shame or his pride, his inability to see his humanness, Adam wanted a false self. And this false self is in the book of Genesis, what led to Adam's destruction. And because he alienated his true self, he went into hiding A snippet from Genesis is, And the Lord God called unto Adam, Where art thou? And Adam said, I heard thy voice in the garden and hid myself. Before the fall, the man and the woman were both naked, and they were not ashamed. So let's like dig into this. I'm like geeking out, right? Once Adam and Eve chose to be something other than what they were, They then, from the Bible's symbolic perspective, this allegorical exploration that we are having here, right? Once they chose to be something other than what they were, Adam and Eve became naked and ashamed. It reminds me of the show like Naked and Afraid, (laughs) but nakedness symbolizes their true and authentic selves. Think about it. To be naked and unashamed means you just are happy with who you are. I think about people, like I've seen documentaries about people in nudist colonies, and it doesn't matter what they look like. They are unashamed. They are—they know who they are. They have their body on display. And that's just what comes up for me when I think about that. So in our allegory of Adam and Eve, when they are naked and unashamed, they were who they were and they were okay with it. There was nothing to hide. They could be perfectly honest. So this symbolic and metaphorical description of Adam and Eve, I'm not trying to convert anyone to Christianity. (laughs) It's a description of our human condition. The unconditional love and acceptance of self is the hardest task as a human. It's the hardest thing we'll ever do, but the greatest work we'll undertake refusing to accept our real selves, we try to create more powerful false selves and masks to give up and become less human, less ourselves, less aligned with our own integrity. And this results in a lifetime of feeling like we're covering up who we really are, of being secretive. And this secrecy and hiding is the basic cause of suffering for me and for you. The goal of working on our toxic shame and what we're going to be exploring in this series is moving closer towards self-love and acceptance. Self-love is another phrase that's just been so overused that we forget what it really means. But self-love and self-acceptance is the foundation of happiness It's the foundation of love and compassion for other people without a moving towards self-love and acceptance. We're never going to get there. We're never going to be perfect, but without moving towards that and consciously trying to attain that in our lives, we are going to be doomed to a lifetime of creating and maintaining these false selves and masks. It takes so much energy and hard work to be someone you're not, to live with false selves, to keep up with which mask you're supposed to be wearing with someone else. Are you doing that right now? This might be the symbolic meaning of the biblical statement that after the fall, the man and woman would suffer in their natural activities, right? The Bible said that women would suffer in childbirth and the man would suffer in his work. Remember, the Bible is a product of its time. But it's like, how can we unpick that more? It's essentially saying that just because the Bible said that the, the natural activities of man and woman is birth and work, so simple, right? But And also very stereotypical. But what it's really saying is that if we are identified with our toxic shame and we spend all of our time upholding these masks and living in these false selves, then we are doomed to suffer in our natural activities, whatever that may be for you. It doesn't have to be that you are living in biblical times where those are childbirth and work. I would say things have changed slightly since the times of the Bible. So how do we heal this shame that overtakes our entire life? Like one of my favorite authors, John Bradshaw, he says, healing the shame that binds you, that binds you. It's like a straitjacket that you can't get out of. How do we find hope? The good news is, is that you can heal toxic shame and you will start to see as we move through this series, toxic shame is everywhere. Toxic shame is sneaky, insidious, super powerful. It's confusing. And the entire reason why it's powerful is because it lives in the dark. We hide it, and that's where it gains its power. By shining light on it, by becoming aware of it, it reduces that power instantly. And so already, just 29 minutes into our time together, you've already taken that first baby step towards alchemizing your toxic shame. And in this series, the first part of the exploration is going to be bringing our shame out of hiding, examining what it really looks like, exposing where it comes from and how we cover it up. We'll explore how toxic shame creates a sense of hopelessness and emptiness and spiritual starvation in our lives. And after we explore that, similar to how we did with the mother and father wounds, we'll move into ways of reducing toxic shame, of transforming and transmuting it back into healthy shame and humility. So let's get into it. Let's talk about the origins of shame. Shame is really difficult to define. It's something that we even learn pre-verbally. Shame is a healthy human power that has the potential to become a sickness of the soul to a certain extent Now there's two different types of shame, nourishing, healthy shame, as we've explored a bit ago, and toxic, life-destroying shame. And as toxic shame, it is the most painful, excruciating internal experience of feeling like we are going to be exposed for the disgusting, awful, shameful unlovable creature that we really are. Shame in this way feels like a deep cut inside of us that we can't get to. It divides us from ourselves. It divides us from other people. And when we struggle with unconscious toxic shame, we are disowning ourselves. We're abandoning ourselves. And this disowning leaves us only one choice. We have to come up with various ways to cover it up. Toxic shame masquerades with various different costumes in our lives. It loves the dark. It loves the secret places. These dark, secretive aspects of shame is exactly what we have to start becoming aware of and exploring. And because toxic shame stays in hiding and covers itself up, we have to learn to track it down. And we do that by learning to recognize its various different forms and functions and how that manifests into these sneaky behavioral cover-ups that we engage in. So let's talk about shame as a healthy human emotion. I want you to think about a time that maybe you were with someone, or maybe you even saw a celebrity being interviewed where they express profound regret over something that they wish they would have done something differently, or maybe exposing a very vulnerable and human disappointment. When we see people act in these ways, we are struck by their openness and honesty. We are experiencing an expression of healthy shame. Expressions of healthy shame look like being aware that maybe despite many achievements and doing things great at certain times, we have real limitations. And it's refreshing to see people express healthy shame. It makes us feel like we can be more human. What our healthy feeling of shame does is let us know that we're limited. It tells us that to be human is to be limited. Actually, humans are literally by definition limited. None of us has or can have unlimited power. No one is perfect. The unlimited power that many modern influencers spiritual gurus, you know the type that I'm talking about, the archetype of person that positions themselves as having unlimited power, unlimited intelligence, perfect, perfectly beautiful, right? They'll show you how to cure X, Y, Z. These types of influencers and gurus offer you false hope. Joining their program or course or something like that of people like this They're tapping into these false selves that we've created. They're tapping into our toxic shame and they know they can profit from it. Limitation is the essential nature of human beings. And we really start experiencing big, big problems in our life when we refuse to accept our own limits. And healthy shame is the emotion that signals to us what our limits are. And like all emotions, healthy shame is energy in motion, e-motion. It moves us to get our basic needs met. And one of our basic needs is structure. And we ensure our structure by developing a boundary system within which we operate so that we can feel safe. Structure gives form to our life. Boundaries and form offer us safety. They allow us to use energy more efficiently. If we don't have boundaries, we don't have limits. And then we get easily confused. We're being pulled in a million different directions, not knowing what we need to focus on, wasting a ton of energy, and we lose our way. We become addicted because we don't know when to stop. We don't know how to say no. Healthy shame is what keeps us grounded. It's like a yellow light that's warning us like, hey, you have limitations. Maybe you need to put up some boundaries. Maybe you need to admit that you're not perfect, right? Healthy shame is the basic metaphysical boundary for human beings. To understand toxic shame, we have to know why we have shame in the first place, and how it's adaptive and healthy. So healthy shame allows us to know our limits and use our energy more effectively to know our boundaries. We have better direction when we know our limits. We don't waste ourselves on goals that we can't reach or things we can't change. And this healthy shame allows our energy to be integrated and used rather than diffused. German-American psychologist Eric Erickson stated that a sense of shame is part of the second stage of these psychosocial development phases. So the idea behind these phases is that we have different phases and milestones of development that we achieve throughout our lives that allow us to grow into a healthy, securely attached adult the way that our society is working right now is that many people are struggling with arrested development which is how we have situations where it seems like a you know 35 year old toddler is raising a child because so many people are out here raising kids right now or as an adult in their life but they really never actually moved through these stages of development so it seems like there's still Acting and reacting emotionally like a child, but they're in an adult's body So when it comes to the stages of psychosocial development, the first stage according to eric erickson is When a child needs to establish a basic sense of trust and this basic trust Has to be greater than his sense of mistrust And we can understand healthy shame best by understanding this trust stage of psychosocial development as babies, we needed to know from the very beginning that we could trust the world and our world as babies is our primary caretakers. Our mom and dad are, our world. They're like gods to us when we're tiny infants We needed to know that we could count on someone outside of us to be there for us in a predictable manner that we could count on. And if we had a caretaker who was mostly predictable, I'm really, really emphasizing mostly because nobody's perfect, and who touched us and mirrored our behaviors, we develop a sense of basic trust. So when this good enough security and trust are present, we begin to develop an interpersonal bond and this forms kind of a bridge. And this bridge is crucial for our development of self-worth. The only way as children that we can develop a sense of self is through healthy relationships with others. We only know ourselves in the beginning of our lives through the eyes and through the mirroring of our primary caretakers. Our relationships as child with our caretakers is a gradual process and how it develops is through a reciprocal interest along with shared experiences of trust. These are essential. Trust is fostered by the fact that we come to expect and rely on the mutuality response. And as we develop trust as children, we develop an emotional bond with our caregivers. And it's this strong bond that allows us to take the very scary risk as children to venture out into the world. And this bond becomes almost like this bridge between us and our caretaker. And this bridge is the foundation of mutual growth and understanding. This bridge gets stronger and stronger with healthy parenting, of course, by certain experiences that we have, and then we come to accept and depend on our caregivers. We know we can trust them. Our caregiver becomes significant because that person's love, respect, and care, and dedication to showing up for us really matters. We allow ourselves as children to be vulnerable and that we allow ourselves to need our parents. And once that basic sense of trust has been established, then as children, we're in a position to develop shame. And it is at this stage, there's a turning point. Depending on the type of parenting you received, and depending on whether or not you had a healthy development of this interpersonal bridge you will either develop healthy shame or toxic shame. So at the age of around 15 months, as a child, you start to develop your muscles. And it's at this phase that we start to have a goal. And this is when you have to establish a balance between holding on and letting go. This is a, one of our earliest lessons that we learn as infants. And the earliest muscle development focuses on gaining balance when we stand up and walk. And when we are learning to stand up and walk, this triggers a desire in us as children to roam and explore. In order to roam and explore, we have to separate from our primary caregivers, which is something that we maybe haven't done before, which is scary. And Eric Erickson says that the psychosocial task for this stage of development is to strike a balance between autonomy, which means, you know, being on your own, and shame and doubt. And it's this stage, which is from between around 15 months to three years old, according to Eric Erickson's theory of psychosocial development. This has been called the terrible twos because children begin to explore by touching, tasting and testing. I've also heard of people saying twos are nothing. Threes are the worst. And they call three-year-olds three-nagers, which I think is literally the funniest fucking thing ever. A (laughs) three-nager. So Why? Because two and three-year-olds around this age are stubborn. They wanna do things their own way, always within the eyesight of their caregiver, of course. And when two or three-year-olds are somehow stopped from getting what they want, which is usually like every two to three minutes because they're always trying to get into shit, (laughs) they have anger. They throw a fit. They have a temper tantrum, right? It's at this stage that the child needs to take possession of things in order to test them by repeating things, right? This is, they're learning, even though it's frustrating for us as adults, they are growing. These behaviors are how they learn independence and autonomy of holding on and letting go. It's at this stage for us when the world is brand new, sights, sounds, and smells all have to be Integrated within us through experiencing them over and over again. What we need as children most is a firm but also understanding and empathetic caretaker who is reliable, predictable, dependable. And it's essential that this caregiver is getting her own needs met. This caretaker needs to have resolved the issues in their own source relationships and needs to have a sense of self-awareness and self-responsibility. And when this is in place, this type of caregiver is available to the child and capable of providing what the child needs. A child needs good modeling of healthy shame and other emotions and coping strategies. The child needs It's caretaker's time and attention. But above all else, the child needs good boundaries. The child needs to have a caretaker who is available and capable of setting limits and modeling the setting of limits. And even though kids fight against structure, they actually find boundaries and this outer control from the parent, as long as it's healthy, to be reassuring. The child needs to know that this bridge that we talked about, this beautiful, trusting, reliable relationship that they have with their parent, won't just go away because the child now has this urge for doing things their own way, this urge towards being an autonomous being. Eric Erickson wrote in Childhood and Society, firmness must protect him, the child, Against the potential anarchy of his yet untrained sense of discrimination, his inability to hold on and let go with discretion. So if a child is able to be protected by these firm but compassionate and loving limits and structure, he is able to explore, test things out, be a bit sassy, have temper tantrums without worrying that the caregiver is going to withdraw their love or withdraw that bridge between them that's been built that they so deeply rely on. And if this happens, then the child can develop a healthy sense of shame. And this healthy sense of shame developed as a child might look like little moments of being embarrassed over their normal child failures and flaws or as being really shy in the presence of strangers and this sense of shame is actually quite crucial and necessary as a balance and limit for this newfound sense of autonomy in this developmental stage healthy shame in this way signals to us that we have limits and that's really important for a child to understand pascal once said he who would be an angel must become a beast. And another religious philosopher, Thomas Aquinas, also once said that a man is a spiritual being who in order to be truly spiritual needs a body. And this is also similar to a statement by George Santayana, who said, it's necessary to become a beast if one is ever to be a spirit. And what this means is that we need the boundary of our human limitations. We have to know that we are not omnipotent. We have to know that we have limits. We have to remind ourselves that we are flawed human beings and that that's okay. So let's talk about shame as embarrassment or a blushing. You know, imagine that in your mind of like, oops, someone says like your zipper's undone, like X, Y, Z, examine your zipper. Did anyone ever say that to you? Maybe it's just an American thing. Like in kids in school, someone would come up to you and say, X, Y, Z. And you're like, what? And then they like point down, they say, examine your zipper. Ha ha ha. Your zipper is undone. LOL. Okay. I digress. But that is healthy shame, right? Oh shit. My zipper's undone. Whoop. Zip it up. Right. That's embarrassment. In an embarrassing situation, we're caught off guard, right? We're exposed when we're not ready to be exposed, it's like a sensation of feeling unable to cope with some situation in the presence of others. It might be tripping over our feet, doing something clumsy, uh, maybe saying something that you didn't mean to say and really hurting someone's feelings, not really thinking before you do something and then realizing that it was a, a fuck up <laughs> And in these situations, we experiencing that blush that always comes along with the feeling of healthy shame. And blushing or that hot rushing feeling in your cheeks, it manifests the exposure, the unexpectedness, and it's kind of that like you can't control it. That's the nature of shame. Helen Lind was an American sociologist, social philosopher, and author who lived in the late 1800s and passed away in 1982. And she wrote, one's feeling is involuntarily exposed. One is uncovered. She wrote that in her book on shame and the search for identity. So blushing is the manifestation of our human limits. The very fact that we're able to blush is a metaphor of our essentially limited human nature. And when we blush, we have an impulse to cover our face, bury our face, or the phrase save face. Or you hear people say, I wanted to like sink into the ground, right? I wanted to like hide in a hole. So when we blush, we know we've made a mistake. Or we've kind of exposed ourselves in some way. And I want you to ask yourself why would you have that capacity to blush and be embarrassed if fucking up wasn't just part of being human? Blushing or being embarrassed is a manifestation of the healthy feeling of shame that keeps us grounded. It reminds us of our boundary, a core human boundary. It's a signal for us to not get carried away with our own excellence. So either you yourself are, or maybe you know someone, everyone's encountered someone who is incredibly shy. I want you to just to imagine someone right now in your mind's eye that is painfully shy. So shyness is a natural boundary, which guards us from being exposed or wounded by strangers. Many of us feel shy when we are faced with the prospect of maybe speaking to a stranger. I know people who are really terrified of even calling to make an appointment at the doctor or making a dinner reservation. We might feel self-conscious, we might stutter or stammer, and we might almost like forget to talk. I'm sure you've been in that situation where you're like, what, how are words this hard? I could totally speak. You know, the feeling of like when you're typing and then maybe your boss comes over and is watching you type and like you all of a sudden forget how to type. (laughs) This is a feeling of self-consciousness, right? So contained in the experience of shyness is the healthy feeling of shame, of this reluctance a natural adaptive quality of not wanting to expose ourselves think about it as an evolutionary protective mechanism the idea of the stranger right a stranger is one who's unfamiliar what's the word unfamiliar unfamily-er get it not our family a stranger isn't our family a stranger is the threat of the unknown And our shyness is our healthy shame in the presence of strangers, of people who are not our family. So, like all emotions, shyness is asking us to be careful, to tread lightly, because there's a chance we could get wounded or be exposed in some way. So, shyness is actually a boundary that guards our inner core in the presence of an unfamiliar stranger. But shyness can become a serious problem when it's rooted in toxic shame. But when you see a small child who's quite shy, that's an adaptive response quite often. They are reacting to the unfamiliar people around them, right? And that's why it's so unhealthy when you see parents, I definitely saw this, growing up, you know, you see the kid who's really shy and the parents like, go, go hug so-and-so stop being so shy. Right. And it's like, we are not recognizing that that's an adaptive response and speaking to our children in a way that reflects that shame is also big in terms of our basic need for community. So as humans, we need other people and this is our need for relationships, our need for a social life. None of us could have made it to where we are now without someone showing up and being there for us, whether that was in the limited way that ended up destroying our sense of self, but you had to have someone there to help you survive to this point. You needed at least someone to be giving you a bottle to survive, right? You need people. And as human beings, we need help. None of us is so strong that we don't need love intimacy and communication in community with others, even though many of us try to convince ourselves that that's the case. You know, think about it. Think about the archetype of person. that's like, I don't need anybody. I'm good by myself. Right. And we develop that belief after many, many betrayals of our trust and having people who should have been there for us in the early stages of our life, not show up in a way. So at birth, we are symbiotically bonded to our mom. We are a we before we are an I, right? You are together with your mom. And as we explored in the mother wound episode, which if you haven't listened to, you can listen to that anytime. A great deal depends on that primary source relationship. But after about a year and a half of establishing this bond of mutual trust with our mom, we start to move out and test out our autonomy. And we obviously need that healthy sense of shame to remind us of our limits. We need our shame and we need a bit of doubt to balance out this newfound autonomy, right? Because if you're just You just imagine, a what's that cartoon? Is it like the roadrunner that just like completely runs off the cliff, right? So much energy, but just runs off and doesn't even think that he's running off a cliff. We need shame and doubt so that we don't run off the cliff, the metaphorical cliff, if you will. We can't get our needs met without depending on our primary caregivers. Our healthy feeling of shame is actually there to remind us that we need help. We can't make it alone and that no human beings can. I even have to remind myself of this all the time. I have a really, really hard time reaching out for help. No matter how much mastery we've gained over life, no matter how independent we are and smart we are and capable we are, there is no level of mastery you can attain that will stop you from needing community we need love and community to grow we need to care for one another and we need to be needed by others and our shame functions as a healthy signal to us that we need help that we need to love and be in caring relationship and community with other people again this is an evolutionary response without the healthy signal of shame We wouldn't even be able to be in touch whatsoever with these core dependency needs. So during a workshop that I was watching on YouTube, one of the facilitators of this workshop asked the audience to engage in a little visualization exercise. He asked the audience to remember a time in their life where they knew they were right. And so obviously, if you're in the audience, you're thinking about a time when you were right, maybe an incident you had with your partner where you're like, I knew it, I knew it. (laughs) So you have to visualize the experience in your memory. And the workshop facilitator asked the audience to make a movie of that experience, to divide it into acts and like run it out as a film in their own minds. And then he asked them to run the film backwards in their mind. And he said to basically run the acts out as a sequence, the middle act first, the last act in the middle, you get the gist, right? And then he asked the audience to run the experience again as they'd done the first time. And they were supposed to pay attention to the details of the experience and to that feeling of tightness. And throughout the workshop, the idea was that after we rerun these experiences in our minds, the times where we thought we were for sure right, and you run it over and over and over again, is that the more you run it over again and flip it and reverse it, it no longer has the power it did the first time. You can't really feel that initial intensity that you felt. So this workshop facilitator was essentially introducing the audience into a form of what is called internal remapping. It's also called submodality work. This is coming from something called neuro linguistic programming or NLP. It's a lot of where like Tony Robbins gets a lot of his modalities. So, but that's not what was important about this the most important thing to recognize about this workshop exercise is that it's kind of about creativity. The greatest human power is our creative power. And many of us, and especially many of you who listen to this podcast, who are highly sensitive, highly emotional beings are very, very creative. And this workshop facilitator suggested that one of the major blocks of creativity is our feeling of just knowing that we're right. And when we think that we're right, when, when we think that we're absolutely right with no shadow of a doubt, what happens is that we actually stop seeking new information. And to be right is to be certain. And when we're certain, we stop becoming curious And curious and wonder are at the heart of creativity. The ancient philosopher Plato said that all philosophy begins in wonder. So the feeling of absolute certainty and righteousness causes us to stop seeking, to stop learning, to stop having this sense of wonder and curiosity and awe. And our healthy shame which is that feeling of our core boundary and our limitedness never allows us to believe that we know it all. Our healthy shame is nourishing and good for us in that it moves us to seek new information and learn new things. And the last piece of our exploration of shame in a healthy way is shame as the source of spirituality. So Abraham Maslow, who is a pioneering psychologist who came up with the Maslow's hierarchy of needs, he wrote in his book, The Farther Reaches of Human Nature, the spiritual life is part of the human essence. It's a defining characteristic of human nature, without which human nature is not full human nature. So what is spirituality? I think spirituality has to do with our lifestyle. Life is ever unfolding, ever growing. And spirituality is about expansion and growth. It's about moving through the phases. For me, it's about the hero's journey, constantly evolving. It's about love and truth, goodness, beauty and awe, giving, caring, connecting, right? Spirituality is about the pursuit of wholeness, of the completion of cycles. It's about our ultimate human need. And spirituality pushes us to transcend ourselves and become grounded in the ultimate source of reality. There are many different names for this. Some people call it Source The creator, Brahma, supreme being, the one, oneness, origin, pure consciousness, the I am, Allah, energy, and many, many more names. Healthy shame is essential as the ground of our spirituality. By signaling us our essential limitations, our healthy shame lets us know that we are not this all-powerful being Our healthy shame points us in the direction of some larger meaning of life, that we are just a part, a square in the quilt of some bigger picture. And this healthy shame lets us know that there's something or someone greater than ourselves, right? Our healthy shame is the psychological ground for our humility. So, in the next episode, we're going to be diving into toxic shame and how unhealthy shame manifests and impacts our life. We spent this episode doing the very important groundwork of understanding healthy shame and the reason why we need shame because what can be a very common misstep in the recovery process is saying, oh, I have a problem with toxic shame. So I don't, I need to get rid of my shame. And that brings me to what I want to talk about before we wrap the episode up, which is shamelessness, right? What is it like when someone has no healthy shame? When we're talking about the DSM, the medical model of mental health, right? Character disorders or personality disorders, or people who are seem to have a, quote, disturbed character through the eyes of psychopathology. They are the kind of people that don't care enough or think enough about how their patterns of behavior reflect upon their character or impact the world and people around them. This can lead to different types of patterns of behavior or distorted thinking patterns. Problematic thinking patterns include like unreasonable thinking, egocentric thinking, hard luck thinking, external thinking, egomaniacal thinking, and impulsive thinking. And when we fall victim to this kind of way of being, this reflects somewhat of an immature or impaired conscience. And in psychopathology, they think that is a hallmark feature of a personality disturbance. And they think this because people that struggle with this have somewhat of a diminished capacity to experience genuine guilt or shame over their actions that have hurt other people. So when they're thinking about doing something, someone who is seen through the eyes of the medical model to have a personality or character disorder. These types of people rarely think about how their actions might affect other people or maybe transgress ethical or moral boundaries. You know, this is also on a spectrum. Sometimes, even if you have like a bit of a concept of a conscience Sometimes we're able to very quickly and effectively block out thoughts of right and wrong or the sense of healthy shame when we're dead set on getting something we want. Not caring enough about how our behavior might impact someone else, we simply give like the rightness or wrongness of these plans that we might have no consideration at all. We just burst forward to do what we want to do to get what we need and what we want. And we might even very well know that others would view our behavior as wrong, but we can become experts at rationalizing and justifying these things. And over time, this guiltless or shameless way of thinking will promote a pretty pervasive attitude of irresponsibility and it will inevitably blow up our lives. And because when we are acting through these disordered, quote-unquote, air quotes, ways of being, this reflects a deficient sense of healthy shame. It means that we're not thinking of how our actions might negatively reflect on the kind of person we are. In these states, we're not thinking about how our patterns of behavior reflect on our character. And when we do perceive that someone is judging us in a negative way, it's very easy for us in this shameless state to think always that other people have the problem, not us. And this is what leads to almost this feeling of wearing the not giving a fuck about what other people think like a badge of honor in order to hold on to this grandiose, false, unrealistic self-image. Even though when we're stuck in these patterns of shamelessness, we have a track record of maybe wreaking havoc in the lives of the people that we love, work with, or live with. And over time, these shameless thinking patterns and behaving patterns develops us into maybe not the kind of person that we really want to be, if we really think about it. So in psychology, there is a concept of neurosis, right? When you're neurotic. So people that are like falling more on the neurotic end of the spectrum, we've just talked about people who are maybe completely on the shameless side of the spectrum. They don't care. Fuck the world. I'm right. No healthy sense of shame that can also be very dysfunctional, right? It can really, really keep us from living a full life and connecting with other people. I have absolutely had phases of my life where I was completely shameless and I was like a bull in a china shop in my own life. And I think if you're listening to this, it's easy to fall into like, oh yeah, I know someone who's like that. I know someone who's a complete fucking narcissist that has no shame. But what we don't do is turn it around and say, when have I been shameless? When has it been all about me? When have I just pursued my needs at the complete expense of others? And when have I not really thought about how my patterns of behavior have maybe reflected poorly on my character? Now, on the other side of the spectrum, we have people that are more neurotic. These types of people are quick to feel ashamed when they've fallen short and feel really guilty when they've done wrong, right? But when we're talking about This sense of shamelessness, which is what we're really focusing on now, is that there is a disturbing lack of capacity to experience even healthy levels of shame or guilt. And I hope through the exploration of this episode together, you've been able to understand that shame is and can be a healthy and good thing and the complete lack of shame can completely destroy our lives. And on the next episode, we're going to be talking about toxic shame. On this next episode, we're going to be talking about shame as toxic, the neurotic aspect of shame, how we adopt shame as an identity and internalize it, and how it can lead to self-alienation and isolation and the development of these false self masks and how this can manifest into codependency and also the connection between toxic shame and what we know as borderline personality disorder so i can't wait to see you back next time on our shame series part two (laughs) So for the second part of this episode, which the first part of this back half is going to be available to public listeners, but it will fade out for you if you're not a premium subscriber, but you'll have access to the first little bit of this conversation. I received a couple of voicemails about the same topic, about control, having a sense of control. And I thought that this would be a fantastic thing to address, especially as we're talking about trauma and toxic shame. So let's listen to these first two voicemails and then we're going to get into the topic.
1: Hi Molly, my name is Eileen and I'm calling from Los Angeles. And I just wanted to start off by saying that I really love your episodes and the energy that you just bring to this world, you really have helped me in so, so many ways. And recently on your episode on fear of abandonment and the mother wound um, in fairy tales, towards the end, you mentioned how control in certain situations can really take over humans. And... My question is, you know, where where does this need to control things come from? What would be some ways to help control the need to control certain emotions? But um, again, thank you so much for, you know, everything that you just bring out to the world. Again, thank you. Bye.
4: Hi, my name is Willow. I'm 24 and I'm calling from Las Vegas. I just finished listening to your episode about fairy tales and how that relates to the mother wound. And I got a lot out of this episode. I think that I actually realized um, how many things in life I and how much stress I gave myself um, and how much suffering I put myself through when I could have avoided all that by just not putting my nose where it doesn't belong and just only controlling myself and not trying to control everything around me. I think that's definitely something I suffer with. But this episode really made me realize like I've lost some relationships um, and maybe not completely, but I've definitely done a lot of damage to some like familial relationships because of sticking my nose in other people's business and trying to I guess, try to solve peace, but it never really involved me. So it kind of just made things worse. And I guess I'm just seeking maybe like, uh, like an answer, I guess, on how do I get over that and how do I, how do I forgive myself for everything that I did? Because I know I was a part of it and it's not just somebody else's fault, but how do I go about forgiving myself so that I can possibly heal that relationship? Um, Thank you so much for everything that you speak on.
0: All right, we're getting into it. We are going to get into control as a trauma response, because that is the root of both of these voicemails. But before we jump into that, I just want to say thank you to Paige and Eileen for submitting these voicemails. It's not easy to get to this point of such a deep sense of self-awareness. So I just want to give you both a huge virtual hug and say, give yourself some grace. I've repeated that a lot in the last few episodes, but please do. And know that you are a human being, not a human doing. You're just doing your best and you're becoming conscious to a lot of stuff that's just been running your life from the background but as someone who has struggled very deeply with both the ability to keep my nose in my own business, as my Southern grandma used to say, not my monkeys, not my circus, right? That's a American saying of basically mind your own business. And I've also had this need to want to give unsolicited advice, and really kind of control the behavior of other people. And it's very easy for that to look like I'm just being caring, but I've had to understand that even though it's coming from what I believe is a good place, is that this insatiable desire for me to want to control myself and other people and my environment and the reactions and behaviors around me, it is incredibly draining to our energy. It stops us from being our authentic selves and it stops us from being. So it's no wonder why our lives are in chaos when we struggle with this. After listening to their voicemails, it sounds like to me as a fellow lived experience person, not a doctor, not a therapist, I like to reiterate that every few episodes just to make that very clear, just someone who spends all of her time reading about this stuff and has been through hell and back when it comes to my own emotional journey. But based upon my assessment, listening to Willow and Eileen, it sounds like they are both struggling with the same thing, which is control as a trauma response. So what is trauma At a high level, trauma is just an emotional response to a distressing event or situation that breaks our sense of security. Trauma can be life-threatening, which is also referred to sometimes as big T traumas or other smaller events that overwhelm or isolate us. And those are sometimes referred to little T traumas. So both types of trauma sets off an alarm that triggers our fight or flight response in our body and mind. And so this creates a heightened state of arousal that makes it feel difficult for us to calm down. And then it makes it to where we're more easily reactivated again in other situations. So trauma affects everyone differently depending upon how you are personally wired. Some people are more outwardly reacting and um, emotionally under-controlled, which is how I believe my temperament is. I'm sort of an acting out type of person. I might have emotional outbursts. Some people are emotionally over-controlled, which means that they might do everything in, like acting inward. Um, Dr. Anita Federici in one of our episodes about emotional over-control and under-control, which you can listen to if you'd like, she says that people that are emotionally over-controlled it feels like sunshine on the outside razor blades on the inside so either way we respond to our trauma we can kind of act out from the outside or we can sort of self-implode and take it on the inside but regardless this is how we develop certain trauma responses so, there's no wrong or right way to respond to trauma. Like I said, it's about how you're wired and how you respond is also not as important as how the response impacts your life. So, reactions to trauma are on a spectrum. Some can be really severe or some can be mild. Um, it can be, you know, anxiety, confusion, dissociation, um, feeling numb. Uh, those are more like milder initial trauma responses. Severe trauma responses can be like severe dissociation, severe intrusive thoughts. And then also there can be delayed trauma responses, which occur long after the events have occurred. So that could be like flashbacks, um, avoiding feelings, sleep disorders, or this ruminating fear that something might happen again. So essentially A trauma response is the repeated occurrence of a certain coping mechanism that helped us survive our trauma, but is now still present whether or not the danger or situation that we are sensing in the present moment is real, right? We're living in the past and we're projecting it out onto the present moment where it's no longer the reality. So when we live through abuse, neglect, or violence, it's really normal to promise ourselves that we're never going to let that happen again. And again, that kind of promise makes sense. It's adaptive. Remember, above all else, we will protect ourselves when it comes to something that feels like keeping ourselves alive and when you've gone through trauma it feels like life or death still in the moment when we're stuck in that trauma response we need to feel safe we need to find a sense of control because otherwise the danger and powerlessness we feel would be too difficult to cope with in our brains this is this is what we're telling ourselves So that's how survivors of trauma, especially those who have suffered complex developmental relational trauma from like really dysfunctional families, they often believe that they have to control any and all situations enough to be able to avoid the danger. It seems like the abuse or the trauma that happened to them was somehow their fault And somehow they did something to encourage it, or they somehow failed to prevent it. And when you believe that it's in your control to prevent trauma from happening to you again, then you also believe that being traumatized was your fault. Do you see the logic there? So you're caught in this dance thinking that all of these hypervigilant behaviors and these grasping and these clinging and controlling behaviors is going to keep you safe. And just by that very attempt, you're also reinforcing within yourself this sense of toxic shame that somehow what you went through when you were younger or maybe an event in your adulthood even that was traumatizing or abusive, that it was your fault. And I want to be... voice in your ear to tell you, if no one has told you recently, abuse of any kind is never your fault. The truth is that you were powerless over your abuse. And if you survived any kind of trauma, the trauma that was inflicted upon you as an innocent victim was not your fault even if you were told that it was it happened in your past you were powerless over it then and you're still powerless to change the past now unfortunately there's nothing that can undo what happened to you but There is something that you can do to heal the impact that trauma continues to have in your life now. So it's important to understand the concept of powerlessness because when we speak about powerless, feeling powerless during abuse or trauma probably made it so that you never want to feel like that again. Your power was taken from you. Your autonomy was taken from you. You couldn't flee You couldn't get away, you couldn't fight or stand up for yourself, you couldn't control your environment, and you may feel a need to be back in control and never, ever, ever be powerless again. You might have lived in complete disarray, or maybe you were raised by someone All right, everyone, that's it for this week's free version of Back from the Borderline. On the premium version of the podcast, you'll hear my full breakdown on control as a trauma response. Not only will we unpack the concept even more, we'll talk about ways that we can start dismantling that in our lives with some practical suggestions. And then I finish off with a bit of a guided meditation that will provide some heart-opening mantras that can really help us provide some more self-compassion and love to ourselves as we work through this really difficult stuff. So if that sounds interesting to you and you'd like to unlock the full episode, you can either click the link in the episode description or visit my website backfromtheborderline.com, click to enter my link tree, and then select the premium submarine option from there. After you sign up as a premium submarine, not only will you get access to the full episode of today's episode, you'll unlock all past full episodes as well as 115 plus hours of bonus content. So, if that sounds exciting to you, I'd love to welcome you into the premium submarines. But if not, you can absolutely support the podcast in a variety of free ways. You can follow me on Instagram at backfromtheborderline.com. You can share this episode with a friend, or somebody you love, or you can rate and review the podcast. But don't forget to follow Back From The Borderline so that you get alerts every time I drop an episode Tuesday mornings. So that's it. Thanks for hanging out with me. There's a lot of different content you could choose from, but you chose to learn a little bit about shame. I'll see you back here next week for part two.
1: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm, Hello Fresh.